When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for June 25th, 2020, the Global Pariahs edition. I am David Plotz, a business insider. I am at home in the dank, dark cube off my bedroom in Washington, D.C. I am joined from... New York City by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. John is in his guest bedroom, which I call the David Plotz Memorial Bedroom because I've stayed there. Have you put yeah, a plaque, the plaque up? The plaque, yes, the plaque is up and um, it's been newly polished by the team of <clears throat> experts here. Docents. Are, the docents. Yeah. Docents, yes. The five or six yeah. docents you have. <laughs> Uh, exactly. And then there is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from her home in New Haven. Hello, Emily. That might be a bedroom I've stayed in also. Do you have a plaque? You, I can't remember if you stayed in this room or a different room, but I'm working on my plaque. I'm burnishing it. Okay, good. I just need to pause for one second because I'm in this this hidden room off my bedroom and I'm about to move from my home and I, so all this, everything's in disarray. And I discovered the most amazing thing, which I just want to share with you guys. So a few years ago, for reasons I cannot remember, Hannah and I came across something about uh, that there were these pinup catalogs for fish. And there, I ordered something which seems to be called the Carponizer, which is carp. It's women holding huge carps in various states of undress. It's the craziest thing I've ever now, seen. For listeners, it's the is it the women or the carp that are in various stages of undress? Everybody, because I've seen everybody. some pretty natty-looking carp in in full coat and tops and tails. It's so weird. I, I like this one. She's she's like I am struggling to carry this huge carp out of the yeah, water. Yeah, it's like <laughs> mermaids, except not. It must be said, a carp, the carps in the pictures that he's showing us are like the size of a, what, like a... They're huge. Yeah, they're really <laughs> they big. probably weigh 50 pounds. They're, they're, they're like a bigger than a toddler. The, the calendar is hilarious. But I digress. On today's GabFest, the virus is back, or it really never left, and everything is falling apart in the South and West, and everything is also falling apart for the Trump administration, which is pretending there is no virus. Then the politicization of the Department of Justice, Bill Barr, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, the cost of what happens when you personalize justice and put it justice in the hands of people who are unwilling to do justice or only willing to give justice to their friends and not their enemies. Then there's a new slow burn season about the rise of David Duke. We'll be joined by host Josh Levine to talk about Duke, the man who set the stage for the white nationalism that plagues us today. It's a fantastic podcast and can't wait to talk about it. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. If you are hoping to travel to Europe this summer, sorry, Americans, we have become global pariahs because of our inept response to the coronavirus pandemic. While Europe and most of Asia have controlled the spread of the disease of COVID-19, they've reduced the r naught below one. It is spreading wildly in Texas, Arizona, and Florida, among other states. And the administration has simply given up. So, Emily, the most extraordinary part of this, I mean, I think we have two stories happening at once. One is the virus. There was no uh, end of the first wave. The first wave just simply moved itself elsewhere in the country and is now in full flame. 
And then the second piece, which is that we have a federal government, at least at the at the White House level, that is completely absent in a way that is maddening and strange. So talk about those each of those two phenomena. I mean, I guess I feel like there's a split screen, right? Because if you look at the Northeast, where the virus was the worst and really out of control earlier in the spring, the curve goes sharply down. We actually look a lot like Europe. And then you look at the Southwest and the parts of the South, and you see this spike. And I don't know if it's because they are using air conditioning more or their immunity levels were really low, or if it's because they reopened too fast, which lots of public health experts warn them about. But they look very different. It's only if you look at the country as a whole that it just looks like we're having one continuous wave. And I sort of feel like that's deceptive. And it makes more sense to think of this regionally as if we were quadrants of the country. Um, or And if you think about Europe, there are some European countries that are having different experiences than others. So again, I mean, yes, they've done like so much better than us, and they can dunk all over us. And, you know, you were calling the show The Global Pariah at the outset referring to us, but I just think we seem like pitiable and weak, and like we can't take care of our own in this way. That's incredibly sad. And I think For people who are skeptical that leaving all of this to individual governors and not having a real coordinated federal strategy for testing and contact tracing and just sort of direction, that has just proved to be a a self-inflicted blow that we can't recover from. Well, I would add that it's. It, you can you can also imagine that we didn't have a great strategy for testing and contact tracing, and you simply had a leadership which said behave responsibly, that said wear a mask, avoid indoor gatherings, don't say hold a massive, aiming for twenty thousand seat indoor gathering in a state with a with a blossoming ep, uh, pandemic, in in uh, as part of your presidential campaign, uh, where you discourage people from wearing masks, so. The fact that the leadership of the country has also not merely incompetently done the things that it could have done if it were science-oriented, but actively discouraged people from doing very easy public health measures, which would have kept us relatively safer. That is what is so appalling to me. And so you have not only the president undermining the public health consensus at a moment where he could be helping, but it's also the consensus that's required to get the economy moving again. So this isn't just about uh, keeping people healthy. It's the precondition to the thing the president says he most desperately wants, which is to return to economic activity. And Austin Goolsbee did a paper on looking at the cell phone data and the and the behavior of people before the shelter in place and then once the shelter in place started happening and then a period of when they started lifting. And what it found was what other studies have found and what we've talked about, which is that the precondition for increased economic activity is not a public order so that people can go rushing from their houses to press close to each other while they go through the clothing rack. The precondition is people feeling like things are safer and they're not going to get sick. And if you can't fix that, then you're not going to have the economic activity that everybody so desperately wants. I mean, just rewind and imagine a world in which, like, all the people who talked about how important it was to reopen the economy, which it is really important. We're going to have a million more people on the rolls. Imagine those people had said, okay, here are the three things we need to do to make sure we can get economic activity going. You know, Governor Abbott in Texas now is talking about a massive outbreak, but when the numbers were ticking up, he was at first forbidding various mayors from imposing orders that people had to wear masks. And so the fact that masks became so partisan and divisive and that um, some conservatives have sneered at them as this loss of freedom has just proved enormously costly. And I think you're, I mean, it's exactly right that like the precaution of the mask and the limits on gatherings are the precondition to being open. But it was, it's as if those dots have not been connected maybe until now when it feels like it's too late for a lot of people, or at least it's going to be much harder to control the spread of this virus, and that's going to have ripple effects out into the fall and next year. The Philadelphia Inquirer did a piece this week, and the, and the, the data are fuzzy, but it found that in 80, um, cases have gone up 84% in states that don't require wearing masks in public. In states where mask wearing is mandatory, cases have fallen by 25%. 
um, just adding. And then I'd add one other little piece of data is that a dozen, dozens of Secret Service agents were asked to self-quarantine because they had been with the president on his um, rally trip to Tulsa. Well, the, the the part with the masking is just so infuriating because you see this masking portrayed by by people who are uh, who really, you know, deserve not they they deserve they deserve extra years in hell. They deserve imprisonment. Saying, "Oh, it's an infringement on my liberty." These are people who wear seat belts. These are people who, if they go to a doctor's office and their their doctor is is not wearing a mask as he operates or not wearing gloves when he operates, they I think they would be upset about that. It is an act of it is an act of um, aggressive, uh, what you know, ev- evangelical cruelty to not mask yourself. It's not about protecting yourself. It's about protecting these other people. And there's this some sense that liberty is I don't have to do anything that impinges on something I want to do, not that I am responsible to all these other people around me. That is what is the, this conception of liberty where you're not responsible to others is is the most disheartening part of this whole thing for me. It's like we we are in this together because we just infect each other. So let's protect each other. We should also note that there's going to be um – Something interesting to watch as New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey announce that they're going to require states. Um, this is a, basically an, a mini American version of what the European Union is is uh, noodling, which is having a quarantine for people traveling from certain high and high uh, case states, uh, keeping them out of New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey, which is what Florida originally did with New York um, many months ago. I, I I want to talk a little bit about us being barred from Europe for the summer um, and 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 also us barring immigrants, us barring H-1B visas and forbidding people from applying for new green cards um, and what that signifies. I don't it, truthfully, there weren't a lot of people who are going to travel to Europe for vacation this summer. There weren't a lot of Americans. There were probably people who were trying to get back to see family who will now not be able to do it. But I don't think there there is a, there was going to be a huge travel boom that is going to be quashed. So it's not that significant from economic terms, and nor were there going to be tons of European travelers who are coming to the U.S. or travelers from anywhere coming to the U.S. for vacations here. Um, and it's also true that we're still going to be able to import iPhones and export soybeans and export music. But what's happening with what the Trump administration is doing and with, with our completely incompetent COVID response is that the things that make us essential to the rest of the world, our ability to attract the best people, our ability to attract the best ideas, and then then you know remix those ideas and share them out in the world, it is completely halted for now. And the rest of the world is going to start to knit back together and we're going to be out of it. And our ability to, to sort of be the central place where it all comes together and then where the best ideas come and the best ideas are germinated and, and spread out is stopping. And and then will be diminished in the long haul. So our central, you know, the, the central power of the United States is not necessarily that we are the biggest market in the world, but it's that we are the place which most people wanted to come and where, which was the the heart of where culture was created, where universities were, where science were, where people wanted to immigrate, where there's this huge mix. And we are becoming uh, peripheral to that. And that's tragic for the long run. We are also included in that evaluation by the European Union with Russia and Brazil, two countries that are have a completely incompetent response to the COVID-19 outbreak. So it's sort of the Betty Crocker seal of despair that we have been given by the European Union for our response. Can I just say one more thing about um, the testing is that the 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 message from the president and the vice president as well, who is who has been putting out the message that, uh, you know, in his Wall Street Journal uh, piece that says America is winning the fight and the president um, um, or and then he has said that fears of a second wave are overblown, which is sort That's of true. There is no second wave. Right. Because right. it's just one it's constant first, first wave. wave. Right. But this is my point. The increases that are happening and particularly the increases in hospitalization are not just the increase of more testing. There are more cases happening, and there is there is actual alarm among experts. But when the president and vice president give people off-roads so that they don't have to engage in the fact that there's actually an increase in hospitalization or an increase in danger, that's equally, that's like another special kind of 
danger here, which is it keeps the ability to focus on one set of facts. It's not just to deny those facts. It's to give people an easy way to not even have to look at them. Emily, I want to close this segment with a question for you, which is that there was an astonishing poll from your hometown paper, your employer, The New York Times this week, about President Trump and Joe Biden, which showed Joe Biden opening up a huge lead on President Trump. And and a key reason for that seems to be people disheartened with the president's poor response to the pandemic and and uh, as well as his poor response to the George Floyd protests. Uh, what did you make of that? evidence that the Biden campaign is doing well, or at least the Trump campaign is in is in dire shape. I mean, I think the question with the Trump presidency has always been if there was a real crisis, how would he handle it? And if he um, botched it, would that change his numbers? And the answer right now is yes. I mean, there's if you look at the approval ratings for Trump over time, you know, Nate Silver is always talking about how they revert to the mean. Right now, they're not reverting to the mean. They continue to separate. I mean, they still could. We're five months away. But um, it's starting to look like people have are turning on him. I want to add, though, that if you look at the swing states, the numbers are closer, right? We're talking about like eight points in Michigan or maybe six points in Pennsylvania. And so if those polls are slightly off, um, if they just haven't been done quite right to give Trump supporters enough weight, which is what we saw in 2016, then the race in those states is closer. And so I think that even though it can sound like a lot of... um, just sort of nervous hand-wringing among liberals uh, who were scarred by 2016 to keep worrying. It seems like it's within striking distance. It could come back. And so uh, Trump could come back. And so I think it's also important for these um, campaigns to be conveying a message of urgency and for voters not to get complacent, because if they want a change of leadership, they're going to have to go and cast a ballot. And the whole challenge of the election remains, right? Like the more we worried about the omnipresence of COVID, the more we need these vote by mail structures to be solid. We need cities and counties out there making sure they have the capacity to actually run this election. And meanwhile, you know, Trump just continues to attack mail-in balloting as if it's some um, crazy threat, which it really isn't. And I was dismayed this week to see Bill Barr, the attorney general, join in this attack as if like these allegations and suspicions of fraud are not just like a fantasy of President Trump's. The poll numbers in the battleground states, um, they are closer than the 14 point uh, lead that Biden has overall. But he's still relative to how Trump did in 2016. He's still doing better in those battleground states than than you'd expect. So given that the battleground states have a higher, a disproportionate share of, of whites with not, without college degrees, which is the president's strongest element of the electorate, what was striking in the Times poll was also, was that on the question, say, of masks, the country is basically not with the president. On the question of Black Lives Matter, the country is with the protesters and not and not with the president. So you have two major conditions where that will be chronic and ongoing all the way through the election. When we think about reverting to the mean, usually what happens is that the thing that causes the bad poll numbers disappears and then the poll numbers revert. The pandemic and the racial unrest in America will be here. And the president's response to both seems to be to actively move against public opinion on both. So that that'll be one thing to watch. And then there was strange punditry about the president's ability to rely on the economy if it starts to come back. But if the economy doesn't come back until people feel confident enough by the response to the pandemic, I'm not sure how he takes advantage of a resurgent economy since he has been against the measures that are the preconditions for that economy to reanimate. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts, and also you provide hugely valuable and appreciated support for the journalism that Slate does overall. We really encourage you to become a Slate Plus member if you possibly can. It's been a tough time for Slate, and they could benefit from your support if Slate is something you value and you're in a position to be able to do it. It's only $35 for the first year, and you get to hear more of us. And the bonus segment you're going to get on Slate Plus today is we're going to talk about 
three months into the pandemic, into the lockdown, into quarantine, into into this diminished, uh, narrowed life, what is it that we have come to love and what is it that we're sick of? So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. The corruption of justice has been a defining element of the Trump years. He's used the pardon power grotesquely. He has installed an attorney general, Bill Barr, who has proven willing to take an obscene view of executive power over fair justice and to literally create a different standard of justice for Trump's friends than for his enemies. This week, we have seen all those forces colliding, first with an effort by Barr to expel the U.S. attorney in Manhattan and replace that U.S. attorney with a Barr lapdog, then by testimony, and then in testimony to the House Judiciary Committee of former DOJ prosecutors that Barr or his lackeys had ordered them to go easy on Roger Stone in sentencing because he was a friend of Trump. Then with a decision by a panel of appeals court judges to stop another judge from investigating the DOJ's really shady decision, Barr's really shady decision to drop charges against Michael Flynn. These are just three recent examples. We also have the uh, persecution of former acting FBI director Andrew McCabe. Uh, we have uh, his Barr's efforts to hide Trump's personal finances from investigators. He Barr's an attempt to undermine the Mueller investigation. So it's it's been a really dismal couple of years of Bill Barr. It probably hasn't even been a couple of years. It's probably only one of those things which has only been three months, but it feels like a couple of years. Um, so, Emily, there was a Republican lawyer named Donald Ayer who testified before the House Judiciary Committee yesterday. I'm here because I believe that William Barr poses the greatest threat in my lifetime to our rule of law and to public trust in it. Is that a fair statement? Donald Ayer, I believe, worked with Bill Barr in the 1980s in the Justice Department and really doesn't like him. I talked to him a couple of months ago, and um, he has strong memories of Barr being very aggressive in his definition of presidential power back then. And I think we're still continuing to see that play out. The current version of it has to do with these prosecutions of Stone and Flynn that Trump doesn't want to have happening, plus other uh, investigations in the Southern District of New York, also presumably disadvantageous to President Trump or people he's close to, like Rudy Giuliani. And so you see Barr willing to interfere in investigations in a way that is what the president wants him to do. There's no law against this. I mean, this is a set of norms established after Watergate that was supposed to really protect the Justice Department and investigations from meddling by the president. But if you decide as the attorney general that you just don't really care about those things very much, then you can um, change how that works. And so I think what we're seeing is all the manifestations of that. Um, and it looks really rotten. It looks like the president's friends are getting off. And the prosecutor who testified about hearing that he, they were going to change the sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone because that was the, the political interest. That was the way the wind was blowing in the Justice Department. That's just not how it is supposed to work. There are so many professional lawyers there who depend on it not working that way. And then to me, I think the worst thing this week was the D.C. Circuit's opinion telling Judge Sullivan in the Flynn case that he can't even have a hearing to explore the very strange looking decision the Justice Department made to drop these charges against Flynn after he had twice pled guilty. And when you read that opinion by Naomi Rao, who is a recent and much hailed Trump appointee, it's just really strained legal reasoning about the role of the court um, at this stage of a case. And there's a very strong dissent by Judge Wilkins, who is a Clinton appointee. And I assume that Rao's decision is going to be overturned by the D.C. Circuit when they all get together and hear the case again in what's called en banc review. But in the meantime, it just looks like the courts are also shaky. And we passed a milestone this week that we now have 200 Trump appointees who've been confirmed to the bench by the Senate, zero of whom, by the way, are black. Um, that was amazing. I saw that. I, I literally... I you texted, texted you, me. <laughs> Can that be possibly be true? Yeah. That is shocking. And these 200 judges, some of them have a really deeply um, held set of conservative beliefs that at least appear in this decision to extend to 
protecting President Trump. I mean, it's really hard for me not to read Judge Rao's opinion and think that's what's going on. And that's that's just not that is not how it's supposed to work. The collection of instances in which the president, who believes the Justice Department works for him, and then the Stone, Flynn, all of these cases are go right to the heart of something the president campaigned against, which was, remember the swamp? What was the idea behind the swamp? It was that people in power would use the levers of power to help themselves or help their friends. Secondarily, that their concern would be disproportionately arrayed towards the things they cared about and not towards the the larger country. So when you think about the president and his the things he gets concerned about and the people to whose aid he rushes, it's people like Flynn and Stone, it goes to something that he was supposedly coming to Washington to change, which is the use of office uh, for the, the interests and ambitions of those in power. Right. I mean, the FBI, law enforcement is amazing when it goes after black people and when it goes after his friends they're the most corrupt people on the planet and i do one other tiny thing as a management matter when you look at the president and because he was beating up on john bolton um perhaps justifiably but when you look at how he rags on all the people who've left left his administration the people he defends or the person he defends is michael flynn who regardless of what the, the courts may say, did in fact lie about what he did to his vice president and in fact didn't tell the truth about his dealings with Turkey. So s- separate and apart from the judicial part, just in terms of maintaining his duties as, a, as an official, the president praises the ones with the issues and rags on the ones who didn't have them. Emily, I wonder if you get a sense of, is the guildship of lawyers so strong that if we get a new Democratic president that a lot of the chicanery and this kind of use of the Justice Department as a as your personal law firm will not be permitted. Or will a new and, attorney and will there general be, came, come in and will the norms snap back into place? Is well, that what you're asking? Or, or it's a, I actually almost had the question, which was, if you really wanted to get the norms solidified, maybe the thing to wish for is for a Democratic president to come in and behave exactly the way Trump is so that Republicans <laughs> and some and then some Democrats will be like, what the hell? This cannot be. And putting in some very strong congressional and judicial restraints that that will outlast whatever president it is. Hmm. I mean, I guess there's sort of two questions here. So to pick up on your thread for a minute, you might think that it's time to have an independent council again, a strong independent council statute in which the appointment of that person comes from a three-judge panel, as it did after Watergate, instead of from within the Justice Department, which is how Mueller was appointed. I totally think there is a case for that. I think I actually made that case about a month ago. And it really has more to do with um, the, the cases involving Trump's tax returns and how Barr was able to manipulate the rollout of Mueller's report. So that's one way of thinking about this, that actually we're, we're constantly in this country and in other countries wrestling with how to have truly independent investigation removed from the presidency that does not spiral completely out of control, as people think that it did, you know, for example, in the Ken Starr investigation and maybe in the Lawrence Walls investigation before that, if you are a Republican. And so that idea that um, we want to resituate a firmer source of power, like maybe this is cyclical and we had problems with the first independent council statute, but now getting away for it, from it, we should go back. But the other questions about like these decisions about sentencing and dropping the charges with the Stone and the Flynn cases, that you just want some principled attorney general to come back in and empower the career professional lawyers. You know, in these cases, the people who'd worked on them for years refused to sign the briefs and either resigned from the department or left the case. That's a matter of just like restarting the professional ethos of the department. And you're going to have to bring in some more people because there's been attrition and just like a, you know, despair going on internally. I mean, this testimony about the politicization of the Stone case this week was incredible. Like prosecutors, it takes so much for people in that position to make that kind of turn. And so what you really want is just to restore the the office um, in in that in that vein. Emily, can I ask you a question about the Flynn case? Was the where was the appeals court determination 
about the underlying case or about whether a judge can deny essentially a prosecutor's motion to dismiss charges? It's about the latter. So, yeah, I mean, I thank you for asking, because what what's happening here is prosecutors have tons of control over charging decisions, but this is no longer a charging decision. This is someone who pled guilty. And so in order to dismiss the charges in that context, you have to have the leave of the court. The judge has to sign off. And so what Judge Sullivan tried to do, because he basically thought something fishy was going on, was to appoint um, Judge Gleason, a retired judge, to come in and argue the position for not dismissing the charges that the government was no longer arguing. He wants to air all of this and find out what the hell is going on. What the D.C. Circuit opinion this week said is, no, you can't have a hearing. It was improper for you to appoint Judge Gleason. You can't try to get to the bottom of this. You just have to sign off on it. And when you read the analysis by Judge Rao, it's a very wooden separation of powers analysis about the judge, the judiciary versus the prosecutor, the executive branch. Um, even though that is just really not how this, it's called Rule 48, that, um, right, that's just not how it's worked before, um, not how other circuits uh, think that it works. But she was very concerned about that. And, you know, for me, as someone who cares a lot about prosecutorial power, in this case, the D.C. Circuit is preventing a judge from not allowing a prosecutor to exercise mercy, right? At least, yeah. like, without investigating it. But really, it's just about the idea that judges have no say over the decisions prosecutors make. And often, prosecutors are going to make more punitive decisions. So there's that kind of um, aspect, too. But is, was Rao's decision based on this idea that you that you said at the beginning, which is that executive branch officials, and I'm asking about the separation of powers part, that executive branch officials have power to make determinations within their own branch, particularly when it has to do with mistaken prosecution, which you might agree with and which previous readings of Rule 48 would agree with. But what makes this different is this is leapt over and out of the executive into the judicial because of the guilty plea, that that makes it something that's not just within the executive. Yes, it's a different phase. I mean, it's also true that judges have to sign off when somebody accepts a plea bargain, right? Mm -hmm. So like all of that plea bargaining negotiation happens in the executive branch with the prosecutor's office, but then a judge has to sign off. This, however, is like a step beyond that, where you've had the guilty plea already, the judge has duly um, accepted it. And now you're saying to me, I don't want to do this anymore. And the judge is just saying you have to explain. I mean, so much of the legal trouble the Trump administration has, and we were talking about this last week in the DACA case, or I guess we didn't really get to talk about it because the DACA case came down right after we taped, but it's the same problem. They give really fishy or, um, Shoddy. Or un- shoddy, re- they guess fishy or shoddy reasons for what they're doing. And there is something that kind of offends the intelligence of some judges. I think that was part of what seemed to be, at least be animating Chief Justice Roberts last week in the DACA case. Sullivan before has done this in the Ted Stevens case, a Republican senator, in which then Sullivan ultimately undid the ruling against the Republican senator. My point is, if you're searching for partisan motivation here in what the what Rao, in other words, say is, a you know, is an extrajudicial process or whatever, he's doesn't he use the same process before? Yeah, I mean, this is a judge. That's a huge case of um, a, a terrible black stain on the Justice Department for prosecutorial misconduct because they hid some of the exculpatory evidence involving Senator, former Senator Stevens. And that Judge Sullivan was willing to really like look under the rock to find out what had happened. And it has nothing to do with partisan affiliation. He just wants prosecutors to behave in a regular manner, right? And he can see that's what's, or he has a suspicion that's what hap- what's happening in front of him in the Flynn case is highly irregular. I want to just close, actually, just by making a point, um, which I like to make periodically because I think it's really important, which is that if you are, believe in a super expansive view of executive power as bill barr does and the president can do the various things he does and that the public's the public mechanism for for uh constraining that is an election that's a theory but what happens when the thing that the president does is exercise the pardon power for people like perhaps roger stone or paul manafort michael flynn protect his friends but what he is protecting 
them from what he is what the, the the punishment he is helping them avoid is punishment that would come because they helped him cheat to win the election and so the idea that the election can be the remedy for all of this uh presidential executive overreach doesn't work if what the presidential and executive overreach is is distorting justice distorting the law to cheat to win the election and that's what's so unsettling to me. It's like I, I feel like if you felt like, oh well, we can have an honest election, and that that's when we're gonna that's when we're gonna call the president to account. You know, that's a theory. I still don't believe that theory, but that is a theory. But if you can't have an honest election because the cheating is happening and the Justice Department is allowing the cheating to happen by administering justice unequally, then the whole thing falls apart. So, just a final point. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Slow Burn Season 4, David Duke, the wonderful Slate podcast series, which takes deep dives into history that we think we remember, we kind of know, and excavates incredible stories that actually we've forgotten. So it was done with Watergate, with the Clinton sex scandal, with the murders of Biggie and Tupac. And now we have a new season, season four, and a new host, Josh Levine, who is, I think, Slate's national editor. Right, Josh? That is right, David. And host of Hang Up and Listen. And Josh is digging in to the story of David Duke, who is, of course, the former KKK leader, the, uh, I guess you can even argue, Nazi, according to some of Josh's reporting, who came within a hair's breadth of becoming governor and then perhaps even senator from Louisiana in the early 1990s. So hello, Josh. Welcome. Congratulations on Slow Burn. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. So I think people remember David Duke. He has this kind of, you know, this handsome Troy Aikman looking guy in the 80s, a very, very good looking blonde white guy who suddenly emerged. So who was he and, and how did he emerge to the world? Maybe not to the narrow streets of, of Louisiana, but to the world as a whole. I have never heard the Troy Aikman comparison before, so I have to give you props for that first. I think it's kind of uh, apt appearance-wise, but he was infamous in the 70s as the face, the new face of the new Ku Klux Klan. Duke tried to present um, the image of of the Klan as a kind of suit-wearing, intellectual, racist and he had some degree of success with that. He got uh, a lot uh, on national television a lot. Um, and so he had some degree of, of renown from that period. And then he sort of went away for a while and reemerged in the late 80s as like a slightly more racist or maybe more than slightly uh, more racist Ronald Reagan talking about how he wanted to lower taxes, how he was opposed to affirmative action, and won elected office as a Republican in Louisiana, won a seat in the state legislature. And he used that as a platform to then run for the Senate and for governor. And that's kind of when he became really nationally famous. 
Josh, I love the opening scene of the podcast where you use this recording that um, a woman who was kind of infiltrated at this moment, right? She's at this convention where Duke is, and she doesn't say that she's a reporter necessarily, but she has this revealing tape of Duke um, that got him into some trouble. And one of the things that I kept thinking about as I was listening was just this, like, line that Duke keeps crossing, right? I mean, he's, by affiliating with the Klan, by talking about really white power explicitly, he's saying things that um, people, white people don't usually say in polite society. And yet, he's also picking up on these deep grievances that white people around him have. I mean, how did you end up thinking about him on the kind of spectrum? Like, is he giving voice to what lots of white people talk about in the privacy of their own homes? Or is he kind of pulling grievances that could be not necessarily racist in a more racist direction? So I think his core audience, his base when he was in the Klan was people who had extraordinarily racist views, who were um, very prejudiced, and he gave voice to deeply bigoted ideas. And in order to build a larger base, one that could get him elected to office, one that could, um, you know, constitute a broad-based national kind of movement, he needed to pull people who would say the kind of thing like, I'm not racist, but... And so he would take people who had maybe a little bit of a seed of, I feel like things aren't really going my way. Um, Maybe I don't have a job or maybe I think I should have more stature in life. And we're looking for someone to blame. And David Duke would assign that blame. He would say that it's people on welfare. He would say it's women having illegitimate children. Um, And he would say just exactly what, what you said. I'm brave. I'm authentic. We all know that everybody believes everything that I'm saying. We all know that this is what you talk about and what you feel deep in your heart. And I'm the only one with the courage to say it. And so he made his followers feel like they were members of this club, of this tribe. And the idea was, like, you know, we are are all being real. We're being honest. And everybody else just isn't acknowledging the truth of the world. And that's a pretty powerful idea. The, tr- the triumph of authenticity. Yeah, I mean, he's a totally inauthentic individual who's selling authenticity. I mean, I don't get into it too much in the podcast, but a lot of people relate the plastic surgery that he had with the way that he changed his his views. And that's, I think it's fair to make that comparison. It feels a little bit too neat to me um, to say, look, this guy has a different face and and different views. But um, he really was somebody who adapted to the times. I don't think he ever really changed his truly core um, anti-Semitic, anti-Black views. He would just figure out how to ride the wave and present those ideas in a way that would chime with the time. So, you know, always arguing that he was authentic while at the same time always changing his um, self-presentation. So that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Josh, because George Wallace... Um, famously loses in 1958. He's endorsed by the NAACP. His opponent is endorsed by the KKK. And he basically says in an, in an incredibly vulgar expression, I'm not going to use that. He's not going to let that happen again. And he then becomes the, the, the candidate who says segregation now, segregation, uh, I guess today, tomorrow and forever. So, it was it, it's always interested me with Wallace is whether he was just deep down a racist and then pretended not to be and then fell back to his first love. Um, if Duke is constantly sculpting his public persona to stay right on top of the line, w- was this deep in his bones from his birth or what portion of it was to seeing an opportunity in the electorate there? Uh, uh, yeah, well, I'll stop there. It was deep in his bones. I mean, from what we know about Duke, he um, first found a kind of sense of community in the White Citizens Council in New Orleans in the 1960s when he was a teenager. These were groups that existed to oppose integration of of schools primarily. And so Duke had a a difficult home life, and he found um, people there who welcomed him and who saw him 
as a kind of intellectual prodigy. He had also started at that early age to embrace Nazism, to embrace um, you know Hitler's ideas as laid out in Mein Kampf. And the people in the White Citizens Council also, uh, you know, were like, we're not, we're not really as into this Hitler stuff. Why don't you stick to, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the regular old American racism? But he would, you know, continue to be fascinated by and pursue these, um, you know, neo-Nazi beliefs into college and, and beyond. Um, and so there's no indication in anything that I've read or heard or seen that there was calculation on the level of not believing the like really core views that that he starts expressing in the 60s and and are sort of you know barely below the surface i mean as emily pointed out the opening of the series you know the uh, intention there the the editorial choice of putting that first is to show that during this period when he's um presenting himself um or about to present himself as a conservative politician behind closed doors he's saying the Holocaust doesn't exist. The world is ready for a new Hitler. I mean, it's it's on tape. Josh, at the moment, there is a white nationalist right that is poisoning American politics. That it's it has become a surprisingly, to me, dominant force in conservative politics, and it is certainly animates some of the support for President Trump. And President Trump certainly uh, at least winks at it. Is there a single line that takes us from David Duke to? the white nationalist right of today? Is he, in fact, the father of this, the ancestor of this, or is it a different, is this a different movement with different antecedents? There are a bunch of direct lines. Eli Saslow is really smart on this. Um, He has a book called Rising Out of Hatred about Derek Black, who's uh, David Duke's godson and who is considered the heir. He was actually called the heir by people in the white nationalist movement. Um, Derek eventually broke away from it, but, you know, his father, Don Black, who is Duke's kind of closest friend and ally in the Klan, and then who started um, the racist website Stormfront, which is kind of the nerve center of a lot of this this movement, you know, Don and, and David Duke both were trying to mold Derek to become the newer, better version of what Duke was. And Duke was, I, I think, of inspirational in terms of how far he got and how he was able to bring these ideas to a gubernatorial runoff in Louisiana, how he was able to put a, a different kind of face on white supremacy and white nationalism. And I think one thing that was so interesting that Eli Saslow told me was that Don Black and David Duke were always primed for failure, that they would have never imagined or hoped or dreamed that their ideas would have the kind of currency that they have today. And that actually people with um, extreme views like this often see failure perversely as success, that it shows them how resolute they are. It shows that they won't stop even when they're told to. And so actually dealing with success is, is not something that they're used to. That's really interesting. I mean, I guess I there's this predictability to this strain of politics, right? I mean, it's not just in the United States. Um, Obviously, we've seen it arise in Europe in various moments as well. And the far right is also um, on the upswing in Europe. There's this part of me that just feels like there's something kind of um, boring about always coming up with the same groups to treat as the other and being so unwilling to see a kind of common sense of humanity across racial or religious differences. I'm not exactly sure how I'm bringing this into a question, but when you watch the footage of Duke at the Charlottesville March, which is like a kind of high point in the last few years for this movement, I mean, do you feel like there's just this... um, way that it's inevitably that that people's distress about their own lives or their feelings about how they've suffered or not achieved what they want to like that it's always gonna express itself in these racial and religious terms i mean it always has thus far in human history i mean i I guess it could change but um, i think that's the pattern that we've seen recur in america and throughout the world and and what you just said made me think of the debate between David Duke and Jesse Jackson in 1977. We included some of that 
in our second episode where Jackson, who at that point was considered kind of the leading voice in, uh, in the black civil rights movement, makes a cross-racial, class-based appeal in this debate around shared humanity. You know, he says things that sound very modern to our ear. He talks about, um, you know, he, the reason that he's taking this opportunity to speak with Duke is that he wants to address his constituency directly because when people feel economic anxiety, they're, um, you know, prey to demagogues. We didn't include it, but Jackson also talks about things like universal health care um, and the importance of that. And so you see this kind of opposing strain and Jackson, you know, would have a, a great deal of success in the in the 80s um, as a presidential candidate with this message. And so there are the, always these opposing forces at work. If you want to put like a little bit more optimistic spin on it, it isn't just like people like David Duke operating in a vacuum. And that's the only message out there in the world. Like there have always been and I think will always be people who are trying to sell a different vision. What's David Duke's role in life now, Josh? I, I, as Emily mentioned, he was in Charlottesville. He, um, he claimed the march in Donald Trump's name, you know, saying that we're going to fulfill the promise of Donald Trump. And then there was that moment in the campaign when Jake Tapper asked him about him, and and Donald Trump was incapable of answering the question to such an extent that Mitch McConnell said. Uh, that uh, criticized him for a seeming ambivalence towards David Duke and the KKK. What's his role now in in conservative politics? I would characterize him as kind of like a spent husk at this point. Um, like his ideas <laughs> are are his ideas are much more important than he is. I mean, he has a internet radio show. Um, he's always trying to inject himself into um, the national conversation, and even when he has some degree of success with it today. The level of success is is kind of microscopic compared to what it used to be. I mean, he was just personally discredited. He went to prison for income tax issues. He was seen as a perpetual candidate. And I think his message in the state of Louisiana got a little stale as people got tired of the messenger. So I'm not doing this podcast because I think Duke himself personally is an important figure or force um, in contemporary politics or American life. But I think the path that he went on is telling and interesting and historically important. And I do think that his ideas and the way he tried to present them, that's still a live issue in our society today. So, so Josh, was Duke excited about this podcast because of the attention it brings him? It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I haven't heard him exp- express that either to me or to anyone else, but he loves attention and thrives off of it. And, you know, we heard in the in the second episode a bit of the first interview that gave Duke a national platform on The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder. And Snyder, I think, naively figured that it would be kind of edgy and, and interesting to have this clan guy on his show. You know, he gave a Duke a platform and the ability to define himself in front of millions of people. And that gave Duke oxygen at that time. And so I think that's a risk when you are featuring uh, someone like this. Is it worth giving them um, the attention that they want? And I think you have to be very careful about how you approach that. I hope I've done it appropriately, but it is something that I think you need to ponder when whether it's somebody like David Duke or, or Richard Spencer, what are you getting out of highlighting them? And I think that's why I've focused more on the past than on the present with Duke. I want to show what he did rather than who he is now. Josh Levine is the host of Slow Burn Season 4, David Duke. Listen to it now on whatever podcast platform you listen to podcasts on. It's great. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, David and Emily and John. Congratulations, Josh. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, uh, I discovered Frosé this past week. My God, I can't believe I've lived my whole life. I've lived 50 years without Frosé. It's delicious. Wait, Frosé? I, like I feel like a 35-year-old woman. It's fantastic. Um, what the hell is Frosé? Frosé sounds like something you would find it's, in an old issue of it's Life like magazine. A, it's like a rosé. It's a rosé slushy made with... It's like rose, frozen rosé 
uh, ah. berries, some sugar, I think some vodka, and it's like a slushy. It is delicious. Oh, that sounds yum. really good. Uh, so when you're having your frosé in Dickerson Mance, what are you going to be chattering about, John? Huh. Okay. Frosé. Hmm. So uh, I've got two qu- quick chatters. The one is um, a revelation about. I've always been frustrated by people who, um, when you when you have kids, they say, "Oh, you know, pay take uh, pay attention to every moment because it all goes by so fast." Because what the hell does that mean, really? And all it does is bum you out at the beginning of your child's life by telling you it's all going to zip by quickly. However, And sometimes that... it feels like it's lasting forever. <laughs> That's true. But then when you come to the position where they are teenagers and about to leave the house, you feel this acutely that, oh my gosh, time passed so quickly. But then if you tell people with n- new children this, all you're doing is replicating the bad advice you were given. Not bad. It's not even advice, really. It's a lamentation. Anyway, so I, however, now have two actual concrete things that new parents can do, which are based on my own um, discoveries in this COVID period as, as we've had extra time at home to kind of clean things up. One thing is that um, Anne, God lover, wrote notes about the kids like at the end of every day when when she could about like just the what they were doing and how they were behaving and we came across some the other day and oh my god they were incredibly transporting to things we'd totally forgotten and the the memories were it was um quite a a balm to the encroaching feeling of leaving them uh, or having them leave us the second thing is record their voices which i guess everybody does now because they have iphones we didn't when our kids were born but the little voices they have are so extraordinary, and you forget it with the passage of time. Those are two concrete things you can do if you are having new kids. Now, the second part of my chatter is a piece called Poker and the Psychology of Uncertainty. It's in Wired by um, Maria Konnikova. She's the, Maria's. She's the she's the best. Ooh, doesn't Maria's she have a amazing. new book out? And which you could also. It's an amazing piece in what in everything that it says, which is great about how poker, which I don't play, but. Um, is a great preparation for the complexity of the kinds of decisions you have to make in life. And I wish I'd known this before I'd written my book because it's a perfect encapsulation of the kind of risk-taking leaps you have to take with bad when you're dealt a bad hand as a president. It's like, and I spend all these chapters talking about that, and this would have been a perfect thing. Um, but it's also just breezily written, light on its feet, fun to read. Um, so I, uh, I recommend it to everyone. Emily, what is your chatter? I recommend Maria Konnikova, who I love and who she's a frequent guest, or she used to be at least a frequent guest on The Gist, uh, but she's just, uh, she's so smart and funny, and I can't wait to read her book. My chatter this week is about the city of Philadelphia. So you may or may not remember a few weeks ago at the beginning of the protests, there was a mass protest that went on to the highway outside of Philadelphia, or actually right inside of Philadelphia, 676, and there was this mass tear gassing where the police gassed all these protesters and they had to run to get out of the way. It was really scary and upsetting incident. The police said they had no choice. They were under threat. Um, They said that there were people throwing rocks at a cop car, that there was a cop car that was surrounded. So some of the footage of, it's not body cam footage, but it's the camera footage from a couple of the cop cars that were there has been released, and it doesn't show anything threatening. You cannot tell watching this more than 50 minutes what prompted the police to let loose with all this tear gas. It is possible that there's something happening somewhere else on that highway that did provoke this response, but this is all the footage that we've gotten. Not clear with all the city and state police who were there why this is it, but so far it is. And it's just, it's really upsetting. It makes you feel once again that the police are not telling the truth and just that there was this like really scary incident um, that didn't need to happen. Um, You know, at a very chaotic moment for the cops, for sure, but um, distressing, really distressing. My chatter is about a really unsettling story in The Atlantic by Melissa Faye Green. She's a really good writer and reporter. And it is about what happened to those children in the Romanian orphanages in the the end of uh, last years of communism. So uh, 
if you remember in 1989, 1990, as Romania, as the communist government of Romania fell and Nicolae Ceausescu was was deposed and I think ultimately executed, uh, there was this discovery that tens of thousands of children had been tossed into horribly uh, squalid orphanages across Romania. And it was a horrible experiment, too, because the, the orphanages featured very little touch and love and attention to the children. And so there are these children, some of whom were severely disabled in various ways, who had just been neglected. And there was an enormous global campaign to try to uh, rescue these children and find them homes. And many of them did find homes and many, some in America. And Melissa Faye Green tries to figure out what happened to these children, what happens when you're, you are raised for the first formative years of your life in an environment without love and touch and care and trusting relationships and bonds. And she finds in particular one young man who's now 39 years old, who's the manager of a KFC outside of Denver and talks about what his life has been like. It's a, it's a, really sad story and just makes you feel that the the decisions the that the Romanian government made and these the way they set these orphanages up was so tragic and cruel and such a crime against these poor children who whose lives have been ruined by it i also have a very quick um other i need your advice listeners so i'm moving into a new apartment i haven't lived uh, i've you know lived in the home i've been in for most of my adult life and I haven't, so I haven't moved in a really long time and I don't really know what it's like to set up a house and like how you deal with all the things of setting up a house. If you have, this is like a Dickersonian uh, request. If you have life hacks for moving and for setting up a new house and like how you get furniture right, or, like play, places to do shortcuts so you don't have to endlessly, I don't know, like better ways to hang, hang pictures or whatever it is, I could welcome them. So please email me at davidplotz at gmail.com if you have great advice. I could really use it. Great service, great organization, great whatever it is that you've had experience with. I'd appreciate it. Can I give one piece of advice that's yeah. probably really obvious? So I always am in a big rush when we move to make everything like set up again. I hate living among boxes. I find it very unsettling. It's better, however, not to like do it all at once because if you let yourself, as I never want to, live in a place for a little while, you'll actually end up making better decisions about things like where to hang a picture or what kind of rug you need to buy, etc. So give yourself a little time to breathe is my small piece of advice. You're probably already sane enough to know that. Okay, and, good to know. And the corollary to that is to pack one box full of the things that will make you feel most at home, whether it's your uh, freeze it. What's it called? Pillow. What's it called? You, what's the, the drink you're drinking? Frosé. 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 Your have bottle of salad. Your thermos of frosé uh, or your favorite tea or your... Um, whatever that will make it feel, uh, you know, less destabilizing, um, in the, in that period that Emily quite rightly puts her finger on, we, it took us, I mean, we're, I'm in, I'm now in, I'm recording this from a new room because we keep kind of readjusting. So the readjustment takes a long time. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. Uh, listeners, you have also sent us wonderful chatters this week. So many good ones. Please continue to tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest, uh, whatever it is that is occupying your frosé drinking time. Please let us know. This week's chatter actually, strangely, is comes from my old employer, Atlas Obscura. It's, uh, Frederick Hilding, at F. Hilding points to a wonderful video made by a couple of former colleagues of mine or former colleague of mine at Atlas Obscura about an Australian artist named Anton Thomas. And what Anton Thomas did is over the course of five years, he hand drew a map of North America uh, using colored pencil. And it is an extraordinary level of detail. The whole map is, I don't know, it's about the size of a person. And it's just gorgeous. And and my former colleague, Jessica Hester, interviews uh, Anton Thomas and talks to him about making this map and how he puts all these special details in it. And you can now buy a digital reproduction or printed reproduction of this map. And it's it's glorious. It's a glorious little video. He's incredibly charming in that Aussie way. And the map is spectacular. That's our show for today. The Gap is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas, managing producer. 
Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Please tweet chatters to us at at Slate Gabfest and follow us on Twitter there. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Good. Okay. We've now had about three months, a bit more than three and a half months of COVID life. And so we thought we'd talk about what we actually like about it and what did we like about it for a while that we've stopped liking. I have uh, a lot of thoughts. I'm sure you guys have a lot of thoughts. I like the pace. I like that things are slowed down, that I have fewer things to do. People in my house sleep a little more than they slept before. And we're all together constantly, which has its moments of intense irritation, especially children toward parents. But also is quite lovely and has like you know, gotten us to have really long conversations, go on long walks, um, cook a lot of meals. But mostly I just think it's going to be actually hard for me to go back to the faster pace that I was used to with so much more traveling and moving around all the time. Do you guys know what the phony war is? My mother was talking to me about this. So in the period between the Nazi and Soviet invasions of Poland and then the invasion of France, which was maybe six months later. So it was late 1939 and then the first few months of 1940. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.